Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Professor Hannah H. Gray, President Emerita, University of Chicago, and Professor Robert W. Fogel, Director, Center for Population Economics, University of Chicago Graduate School for Business, and 1993 Nobel Prize winner in economics, discuss teaching economics from a historical perspective. We hope you enjoy today's podcast, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Hi, Bob. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. It's a long time since we've been sitting across the way. It is. In it this is. kind of uh, close manner. The uh, Our careers have led us in, in different paths. That's true. Since the late 60s when we spent so much time together. I forget, what was the name of the committee? The Dixon Committee. The Dixon Committee. That's right. Yes, the Marlene Dixon Committee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, I remember many things about the committee. I remember all the people on it. And I thought it was, thought the university was lucky to have such an exceptional group of people who were both devoted to scholarly principles and who were who were humane, who cared about uh, young people. Uh, but uh, I suppose what I remember most was listening to a program in. Uh, on on the radio with Studs Terkel, in which he was interviewing Marlene Dixon. Yes, and she he said she said that the trouble with the University of Chicago was, was that it was a meritocracy. <laughs> People got promoted for merit. <laughs> I was sort of so astounded. What what else should we use in promoting people? A lottery, and I think that's what she felt. It ought to be. So it ought to be done by lottery. That uh, was a different time. It I was mean, a different time. The notion of radical politics and its yeah. extension to the university yeah. really went well beyond politics to some notion of, of, of university governance and so forth. It had nothing to do with our kind of institution. But that was, that was the radical era. I, you know, I know English universities pretty well especially Cambridge and Oxford. And I always have admired the fact that we have a professional administrator in our leading universities who were drawn from the academics, that is, we promote academics. And that leads to freeing uh, people who don't have administrative duties to concentrate on their work to a degree that's not possible at Cambridge or Oxford because all administrative decisions are made collectively. And sort of all of the fellows are involved. And the year I visited at Cambridge, uh, I was invited to sit in on, Mm. I was a visiting fellow, I was invited to sit in on the fellows meeting. And I spent the better part of the year trying to decide what kind of a door to put on the gate from the master's house to the garden. 
That's quite wonderful. That whereas, does sound like an English university college. Right. Where, whereas here, you'd walk out and say, oh, isn't that a nice gate? <laughs> it would appear by magic. Now, sometimes you have individual members of the faculty who think they should have been consulted about that. Ah, uh, so you do run into... You do run into that from, uh, from some of your colleagues, I can assure you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I can see getting in... Well, I, I guess you can have strong feelings about the architecture or other things. And on some of the things, Enid and I find ourselves... We like some of the new buildings that have been put up. Mm -hmm. And... Many close friends don't like them. Uh, by the way, I think that gymnasium is ought to win. Both Ian and I think if it doesn't win a bunch of architectural prizes, uh, there will be something wrong with the committee of judges. It's such a spectacular. Uh, it is. It is. And Caesar Pelle is a very good architect. Really a very good architect. Also, uh, I mean, I, I know that there are a lot of people who didn't like the idea of parity that is having as many undergraduates mm -hmm. as graduate students. But I never felt it would, it would hurt the graduate programs. No. Uh, Doesn't have to. Well, we're, we're at parity now, I think, aren't we? Is, is yes. this the year that we reach 6,000 undergraduates? No, I think it's closer to 4,000. 4,000. I think the ultimate goal is not more than 4,500. Oh. But we've basically been a third undergraduate, a third graduate, and a third professional. In some combination, that's where right. we've been over our whole history. Right. Well, I, I tend to lump the, the professional and the graduate together. Uh, I think that it adds up to something more than 6,000. In any case, I think there, there is not parity, but a much better percentage, you know, like 40%, which makes sense. Well, having spent uh, six years at Harvard, where there is the undergraduate program is large relative to, at least in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And 6,000 students. Yeah. I never felt it, it in any way diminished the, the quality of the graduate work or distracted the faculty. Mm -hmm. And uh, the undergraduates, I have undergraduates in all of my courses. They're very bright. I, if they didn't identify themselves to me, I couldn't say yeah. who were the undergraduates yeah. and who were the graduate students. Right. They're bright, they're thoughtful, they're probing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's fun to have them. And also there's a lot of self-selection. There is. Students are not going to take courses they don't think they're going to, in which they don't think they're going to be able to handle the material. That's right. So are you teaching any history, Bob? Well, all, 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 I teach three courses. One is called Population and the Economy. Uh -huh. That's the fall quarter. The second is called A Guide to Business Ethics. Mm -hmm. And the third is called uh, The Economics and Demography of Market Forecasting. Wow. And I use history in all of them. I can't approach any topic other than through a historical lens. Mm -hmm. uh, most of my research now is devoted to forecasting uh, 
uh, long-term trends in the rate of aging, and particularly trying to answer not only what is the likely increase in uh, life expectancy mm-hmm. over the next 50 to 100 years, but also what's going to happen to age-specific uh, morbidity rates. As, as we live longer, will we have more and more chronic conditions and have to spend more and more money to keep us functional? You have some preliminary conclusions about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I do indeed. Although, uh, uh, the word preliminary has to be underscored. I mean, they're okay. really, at this point, guesses. Uh, we don't have, uh, we have enough evidence to sort of give us some research hypotheses, but not enough that I'd want to hang from my fingernails on. Uh-huh. The But uh, I think it's likely that life expectancy will increase as much in the 21st century as it did in the 20th century, and uh, which means that life expectancy uh, in 2100 will be in the neighborhood of 106 at birth. Wow. And we also think that the uh, chronic diseases are going to be pushed off. So uh, the average age and onset of arthritis, for example, of people who turned uh, 65 in 1910 was uh, 55 years. Of people who turned 65 in the late 1980s or early 1990s, the average age of onset was about 67. So it's 12 years later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have 12 more years in which you're, and the same thing is true of most of the other major Mm -hmm. chronic conditions, in which you're sort of uh, disability-free, chronic Mm condition-free. And then once you get these conditions, we have very effective intervention, very expensive, and very effective, and I think they're going to get more effective. So I, I forecast that uh, currently the share of gross national product spent on health care uh, is in the neighborhood of 14%. Uh, I, I think that by 2030 it'll be up to about 21%. And what will have happened to the economy? Well. Uh, one of one of the reasons uh, that we'll be able to spend more uh, is that everything else will become so cheap. Yeah. It already became cheap. If you look at it in terms of hours of labor, mm-hmm. uh, in 1900, the head of a household had to work uh, close to 2,000 hours to earn the food for the family, 2,000 hours a year. Now they work 260 hours. Wow, what a difference. I think by 2030, they'll be working less than 150 hours. Amazing. Food will be cheap. Even consumer durables will be cheap. I mean, it's incredible. The first time Ian and I bought a color TV was around 1970. And in 1970, it was a 13-inch set. Mm-hmm. We paid something like $600 for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had, 
I think we got four stations. Mm -hmm. And then later on, we bought a uh, converter that permitted us to get two or three more stations. Mm -hmm. And no remote control. Yeah. Now I can buy a 13-inch television set for under $100 in, in today's dollars. Uh, if I put it in dollars of 1970, it would be under $20. Yeah. And 100 channels or so? Uh, 180 channels, <laughs> remote control. Yeah. Uh, there are, uh, I could play my home video cassettes right. by just hooking it into right. jacks in the front. Uh, great picture, great sound. Well, how do you find the historical evidence for some of these? Some of these aspects of what you're studying, for example, how do you know about, I mean, obviously, mortality rates, I take it, we have very good information on. But what other kinds of evidence do you look for that maybe historians haven't always made use of? Right. The, uh, we know about the health of the cohort that turned 65 in the first decade of the 20th century because of the Union Army pension, ah. the pension that was given mm -hmm. to Union Army veterans. Mm -hmm. By the way, the Union Army pension was the motto for Social Security. Uh -huh. When Wagner uh -huh. first introduced it, he said, we're gonna have a Union Army pension for everybody, not just, not just for veterans. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the thought of Social Security. But uh, uh, the Union Army pension required veterans to get examined physically mm -hmm. about every three years uh, in order to demonstrate that they were still sick. Nearly all the chronic conditions that they had were, once you had it, you never got rid of it because there were no effective interventions. And all those records have been well maintained? They're all at the National Archives. Huh. And, you know, our research team is about one-third physicians. Mm -hmm members of the National Academy of Medicine, and, uh, and they looked at these, and there are also people, one of them is Nevin Scrimshaw, uh, who is uh, the doyen of nutritionists and uh, has worked for the United Nations uh, Medical University. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in third world countries, he's set up many field, and he said if he had, if he was doing research, if if he was treating not doing research but treating patients in rural India, uh, where they didn't have access to X-rays or yes. other things, he could not have done better than hmm. these Union Army surgeons did. Hmm. That they were, they were very competent. They were. They were very careful. Uh, he also he 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 and uh, uh, another person we had was J. M. Tanner, who's uh, the leading pediatric endocrinologist and mm -hmm. uh, the leading figure in the biology of human growth. Uh, and they helped, uh, they went through all the records very carefully and they helped us interpret it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, the, those of us who were economists with a strong interest in demography, 
were were their pupils yes. at every point. I mean, they yes. were and they they were not only great uh, physicians but wonderful teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if they saw that you didn't understand something, there'd only be you'd only notice that they noticed with a flicker mm -hmm. of a second in their eye, and they'd go into a very nice little lecture. Yes, on this is what you should know. Yes, uh, about this or that process. So uh, the research was very interdisciplinary, uh, driven to a large extent by the physicians, mm -hmm. who told us what what to make of it, right. and we sort of took that ball and said, well, how could you use that to forecast economic aspects of healthcare? And, and is that is, is that where your current interest in history comes from? Is forecasting, i.e using evidence from the past, understanding these larger cycles right. as economists always have right. in order to forecast rather than, because obviously this is a considerable contribution to history too, quite apart from forecasting, isn't it? I mean, could, a, I, could I an Americanist so. take this material and write a whole 20th century history from it, not uh, worrying the, about the future? Sure. Uh, I mean, if they're interested in issues of health, mm -hmm. the political repercussions of Mm -hmm. Of disease, and they I mean there was there were great repercussions because we built cities quicker than we developed techniques of public health, mm -hmm. and and uh, there were also uh, you know the cities were overwhelmingly foreign born in their children. Mm -hmm. It was the the foreign born who populated the cities. Yeah. Uh, it's often misunderstood because if you look at the 1860 census, it'll say 50% of the population is native-born. But if you look at people age 20 and over, it's 80% who are native-born. And 30% of the 50% or 40% are their children. Uh -huh. There are only 10% native-born children of native-born parents. I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. So it was overwhelmingly uh, a uh, foreign-born in its culture because the first generation, although it, it imbibed the national culture, mm -hmm. also maintained the culture of their parents. And it was a, a period in which religion was very intense what we now call the religious right was the religious mainstream. Mm -hmm. It was evangelical Protestants yes. who dominated uh, both northern and southern life and, and were hostile to the Catholics. Mm -hmm. And the Catholics, after about 1835, were the majority of the immigrants, first mm -hmm. from, from Ireland and then Catholics and non-evangelical Lutherans from, from Germany made up 70 to 80 percent. And uh, the assimilation was not easy. It was bitter. It involved riots in the major cities, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, right. uh, and uh, hostility to the foreign-born played a major role in in the rise of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party uh, used, uh, in, a, in a subtle way, it used anti-Catholicism yeah. 
to sort of mobilize the, the native-born Americans of native children, mm -hmm. um, uh, the native-born Americans of native parents. Sure. So what, what are sometimes referred to as the old Americans. Yeah. And the new Americans, if you go to the 1844 elections in New York, there were uh, Protestants and, and Catholics and uh, non-evangelical Lutherans were about evenly split. By the time you get to the 1860 elections, they're about 80% in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And the Democratic Party has uh, taken into its bosom all of the immigrants, mm -hmm. nearly all. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not, not all that different from the Democratic and Republican Party today. The Repu Democratic Party is the party of different ethnic of ethnicities. Although the ethnicities are different, they're no longer Central European. Sure. Uh, they're, they're Latino sure. and, uh, and uh, Is there Asians. a political dimension to your study? That is, are these, are these political dimensions at all important in understanding the material itself? It was in the book that I published in in two thousand. Yes, called, which I've read. And there, there, I was sort of interested in the religious basis mm -hmm. for American politics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, of of all of your of all of your colleagues uh, and faculty who you who you uh, served as president, I think I'm among the most secular. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a very secular New York. My parents were religious. What generation are you, Bob? I, I turned 13 in 1939. And what generation are you in terms of foreign-born? Oh, I'm, uh, my mother, father, and brother were born in the United States. Mm -hmm. I was born four years after they arrived. Okay. I grew up in a world of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Not only uh, Russian Jewish immigrants, but most of my friends were American-born kids of Italian parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to Stuyvesant; it was about fifty or sixty percent Italian. Right. Uh, I have a I had a. So they were all Catholics. They were all they were all Catholics. Their fathers were devoted. Yeah. They were much less. We were all. We mean we were sort of. 15 and 16 year old skeptics and we yes. thought our parents were old and they didn't yes. understand they didn't understand these issues very sure. well and and we were the wave of the future we understood uh -huh. it uh -huh. so we were sort of making uh making our own way and that you know continued as as an undergraduate at college at cornell mm -hmm. uh and i i didn't understand religion uh, I never quite got it from my parents, although they were, my brother was more religious than, than I was. Uh, and my children are more religious than I am. Really? Mm -hmm. uh, Enid's, well, Enid is pretty religious. And that, you know, she paid a lot of attention to their religious education. I see. And, and, uh, they, since they were both boys, they tended to identify with me. 
So it was my wife who ended up taking them to the synagogue, <laughs> not me. Mm. Although, as you probably remember, she's Episcopalian. And she still, if we're in an Episcopal or Anglican church, she'll still take communion. So uh, I knew it was very deep and very meaningful to my parents, to my wife. And uh, I just had, you know, religion didn't matter. Yeah. If people want to be religious, that's fine. I didn't think it had anything to do. And it was not until I started studying the anti-slavery movement and discovered that this was a religious movement mm -hmm. uh, at its core and throughout, down through the Civil War. Yes. It was a deeply religious movement, and we would, we would not have had an end to slavery if we left it up to the rationalists, the people like Jefferson, who couldn't get over the, the slaves had a right to their, to their freedom, but the masters had a right to, their, to the sanctity of their property, and they could never get over it. And the evangelicals said, there, this, is no, uh, this is no dilemma. Uh, slavery is a sin. Mm -hmm. It's a sin for the slave owners. It's a sin for, uh, for, the, for the slaves because they cannot achieve a sal salvation because you can only achieve salvation by exercising free will. And as long as their masters made the decisions, they were condemned to hell too. So it was a, a, a deeply religious movement. They secularized it only when they realized that you couldn't get a majority in the North. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On, a pure, on a purely religious appeal, you get five or 10% of the vote. Yes. So they developed economic arguments, political arguments. They were very ingenious in in reaching out, and, the, and they're very brilliant coalition makers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's only when I, I suddenly discovered, my God, religion is a tremendous force. Mm -hmm. And I said, how is it that it took me until I was in my 50s or early 60s yeah. to discover <laughs> what a tremendous force religion was in American life? And I still have, if you come to my house, I, in the, the room that I spend most of the time in, I still have the encyclopedia my parents bought for me yeah. when I was about 10. It was called The Book of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's organized chronologically. In each book, there's sort of a book of literature, a book of history, a book of science. And uh, the next volume has the same set mm -hmm. of books, but it takes it further along in time. And the books I liked the most were the book of science. I liked them all. I mean, I, I read the book of history and I read the books of literature, so I liked it all. But I was really taken by the books of science. Why? Well, it was, maybe it was the age we were passing through, but, you know, we were sort of the beneficiaries of electricity and, mm -hmm. and of, of radios. Right. My parents, I knew that they were new. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how new indoor plumbing was. I mean, I thought everybody everywhere in the world had indoor plumbing. <laughs> it's, just, it's just what goes with, with an apartment. Uh, but when I read the book, all the good guys are 
Well, all the bad guys are people in the church. Ah. All of the good guys are very secular, mm -hmm. including Newton. Mm -hmm. It took me 40 years after I read the Book of Knowledge version of Newton to discover that he thought his most brilliant papers were his theological papers. Yes. I never knew he had written a theological yes. paper. It's yes. just not mentioned. We weren't taught that when we were young. No, no. it was just not mentioned. Mm -hmm. So th those books were written by very secular people. And, you know, uh, I know a little bit of the evolution of secular thought uh, in the United States. Uh, but the, my, my undergraduate, I was, I didn't know when I went to Cornell that 10 years early, I started in 44, uh, chapel would have been compulsory mm -hmm. and it would have been Presbyterian chapel. Yes. Uh, when Gilman became the first president of Johns Hopkins, also a devout Presbyterian, and required compulsory mm -hmm. Presbyterian chapel. Somebody asked him what would happen if, if they had a student who didn't want to go to Presbyterian chapel. He said, well, there's always another school that he can go <laughs> yes. to. So there was no, there was no uh, embarrassment. Uh, it was only in the 1980s when I started reading that I discovered that nearly every university prior to 1900, every college, was was uh, was church founded. Was, was church founded. Private ones. And private the presidents ones. were nearly all ordained ministers. Yeah, at least all the private ones. I mean, obviously the public ones. No, even the University of Michigan mm -hmm. had had. Uh, well, one of the things I liked about uh, a, a phrase I ran across from for a man who was talked about uh, uh, removing dogmatic material from the curriculum. What he meant by dogmatic was not distinguishing between uh, congregational and Presbyterian and Baptist, mm -hmm. sort of what is the common set yeah. of, of theological principles. Mm. He did not mean Roman Catholic principles. No. No. He meant uh, having a curriculum that's based on Protestant curriculum separate from denomination. Yes. So, uh, well, all of this was, was uh, mind-boggling to me. Yeah. I had a conversation with Arthur Mann once before he died. And he said to me, Bob, this stuff that you've been working on so hard to teach yourself is pretty well known by most American historians. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a disadvantage in something. There's an advantage, I think, in being self-taught in that you, you find crevices and cracks in the terrain oh, yeah. that you might not have paid attention to if it was taught to you in a standard way. But there's a heavy cost, and the heavy cost is uh, 
you have to do a lot more reading to put it all together. Mm-hmm. And that's what your teachers do. They've done all the reading and they know how to put it together for you. But you know, when it comes to history of religion, history of the church, my field is, of course, the uh, late Middle Ages and early modern period. And one of the things that is most difficult to try to explain to students who grow up thinking you are religious or not, and who grow up thinking that the church, whether it's the Roman church of the Middle Ages or the churches that came into being later, are single dogmatic units with with an oppressive orthodoxy and autocratic rule. The hardest thing to teach them is, in fact, the wide range of opinion that can exist within a single church, like the Roman church, the way in which people could disagree with one another throughout throughout the period that I'm dealing with on major points of theology, church governance, and so on. And on the other hand, what they find even harder to understand is the curious mixture of religiosity and secularism that in fact typifies in many ways most human lives and did in the 15th and 16th centuries. In other words, they think that if people were religious then, then they couldn't, I mean, Machiavelli could not have belonged to the church, but Machiavelli belonged to the church. And he had teachings that were very critical of the church, even anti-Christian, and at the same time, he was a Sunday Christian. He wasn't going to leave it either. That kind of understanding of how people have, in fact, lived and behaved is fascinating to try to teach and the hardest thing to understand, and that is the the mixture, the complexity of the past in that sense. Well, it certainly was hard for me to learn, uh, even though I was older, because I started off with uh, what I would call a dogmatic secularism. Mm -hmm. And to discover the subtlety that you're talking about and the differences of opinion, And to discover that even if you agreed 80%, the other 20% could lead to war. Yeah. It wasn't enough to be 80% in, in yeah. agreement. So, uh, yes, it was, it was surprising. It was also liberating. I mm-hmm. mean, I, 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 mm-hmm. the, the discovery of this tortured way in which we involve, evolved in our thinking on so so many, mm-hmm. both humane and scientific issues, mm-hmm. to where we are, and it also makes me a little uh, cautious about wanting to claim that we're the final word, yeah. that our science uh, will not be modified in some way or some aspects of it in ways that we can foresee. Well, doesn't your forecasting on the basis of the past no, tell pretty, you that it will pretty, be, that it will be, or yeah. is that simply speculation rather than evidence? No, well, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's a good bet. Yeah. If you ask me <laughs> to make a bet, I'd bet right. that we're going to discover things, particularly in biology, but also in physics and chemistry, mm-hmm. that will be beyond our wildest current dreams, and as little as 50 to 100 years from now. Uh, because we, we don't know where all the work on the genome no. is going to go. Well, and we don't know, the, for example, in astrophysics, when you think of the expanding universe, the collapsing universe, right? the further universe. Right. The degree to which physics has changed during the 20th century would, would surprise even Einstein. 
There was some English prime minister who once said that, alas, modern science had been invented since he left school. <laughs> and I often feel that yeah. way. <laughs> well, I think that is true. I mean, even in my own fields, uh, five, six years in some area of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of the bi biology or chemistry of, of health and aging is, uh, lead you into major new pages. Yeah. In, in what's going on. If you, I mean, it's not that there isn't continuity and wherever you are at this point is because of where you were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But it's very hard to guess. I was at a conference at Rockefeller University about uh, uh, early October. Uh, uh, the conference was organized by a man by the name of Jesse Asabel, who's a uh, very fine uh, I guess ecologist is mm -hmm. is the best term, but he's sort of very broad gauge. Yes. And he brought together about thirty people from from chemistry, physics, uh, a number of people from business, the the biological sciences, and two economists. So. Mm -hmm. Two economists snuck in under the bar. <laughs> uh, they were uh, they were all speculating on sort of big things mm -hmm. in the next fifty to hundred years. Nobody really wanted to stick their neck out because everything yeah. was sort of up in the air. Yeah, uh, there were some things that are already pinned down. Uh, we are now at the point of having uh, prostheses that are combinations of electronics and human cells. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer just mm -hmm. sticking uh, a chip in you. Mm -hmm. It's sort of creating an organ yeah. uh, which has living cells, but which is powered. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we're going to be doing uh, some pretty amazing things. I mean, stuff we do now, and when I was, 11 or 12, I'd go to these monster movies yes. and, and see p parts being mm -hmm. put into organs, and you knew it was just a story. It couldn't be true. <laughs> and now we're and all only monsters composed would of spare parts. Right, all of us, right. right. We're all, in one way or another, <laughs> we're all composed of spare parts. Well, I really look forward to seeing this work that you're doing very much. And I do appreciate the chance to talk with you, Bob. Thank well, you. Well, thank you, Hannah, for all that you've done over the years to encourage my work. Well, you're very nice. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.